All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the delicious food and the sweet fellowship that we have enjoyed together. I pray you'll use the food to strengthen and nourish our bodies, and I pray that you'll bless us in our time of Bible study as we continue our journey through Judges. Help us to learn, and I pray that our souls will be fed as our bodies have been fed. I pray that our souls will be fed today by your precious word. Father, we reflect on the meaning of this day, and none of us will ever forget where we were. None of us can ever forget the horrible loss of life. And so, Father, we pray your blessing upon those who suffered the loss of loved ones that day. And, Father, we pray that you'll comfort them in a special way today. But, Father, bless our nation that we will turn to you, and I pray that you'll give wisdom to those who lead us. And I pray that we will know of your presence in this room this afternoon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, judges, do you remember the cycle? I don't print it up every week, but do you remember in your outline, uh, the people rebel, God is angry, uh, he orchestrates oppression by enemies of the people, then the people cry out and they repent. And then God raises up a judge to bring them deliverance and salvation. And then there's peace in the land. And then the judge dies. And here we go again. Over and over and over again. Last week I gave you a map of of Israel. I'm not going to print that every week. But you might want to bring that map or stick it in your Bible where you'll have it uh, from week to week. Because I will refer to it at, at least occasionally. So today we are, we are still in the first chapter, and um, I'm sure that really astonishes you that we haven't gotten to chapter 2, but we are in the first chapter, so if you'll open your Bibles to Judges 1, we reached verse 21 last time, so the outline shows conquest, verses 2 to 36, God delivers incomplete obedience, that's where we are, we're in the section incomplete obedience. I think we observed last time that likely when you were growing up, your parents were not willing to accept incomplete obedience. They expected complete obedience, and you expected that of your children. Um, And maybe you expect it today of your grandchildren, if you have grandchildren. We expect not partial obedience, but total obedience. And sadly, the the story of the last part of this first chapter is how Israel was only partially obedient to what God told her to do. So let's look at verse 21. We'll pick up there and, and make our way. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem To this day, that is the day of the writing of Judges, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. That was not God's plan. They were to run the ites out of the land, and they didn't. It was an incomplete obedience. Now, it seems like we're going to be saying that every other verse for the rest of this chapter, but it is a reminder. It's not just historical knowledge that is helpful to us. There is spiritual application there. What is the call to our hearts? It is when we know God's will for our lives, 
then there should be on our part not a partial obedience, but a complete obedience, a total obedience to what God wants us to do. We can't partially obey and check it off and say, well, I know God is satisfied with that. No, God expects total obedience on our part. And I would be horrified for you to know all the times in my life when I've been partially obedient instead of totally obedient. And maybe you would be horrified for me to know how many times you've been partially obedient. All of us understand that. But God wants us to obey him wholly and completely. Now, if you go to verse 22 to 26, I want you to pay real careful attention, real careful attention. You know what God has said to Israel. Did God say it's okay to live next door with the ites? It's okay to live in their neighborhood. It's okay to even visit their shrine. That's okay. No big deal. Dwell among them. Did God at any point say that? No, he did not. Not at any point, any time, any place. God never said that. So I want you to look real, real carefully at verses 22 to 26. And let's see what you think about this. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel. And the Lord was with them. Now that is important. The Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, show us how to get into the city and we will see that you are treated well. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? So he showed them and they put the city to the sword but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. So let's just pause there for a moment. The tribe of Joseph. What tribes would that be? His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, God is with them. So as they are approaching the city, here's a man coming out, and God is with them. They don't need his help, but they think they do. So, hey, buddy, tell us how to get in. What's the best way to get in? And we'll make sure you're taken care of when all this is over. Okay. He tells them, they go in, they win the victory, and they take care of the man. They don't harm him. He and his family go and start another city by the same name. What what are we looking at here? You know, if you just, I can remember reading this and, and paying attention to it for the first time sometime in the past and thinking, okay, that's that's cool. Is it? Do you see here total obedience or partial obedience? Now, if, if, if the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh did, if for some reason they didn't want to kill this man, they didn't need his help. They didn't need his advice. What did the previous phrase say? 
God was with them. So they could just go and storm the city and they were going to take it. You would have thought they knew that. But as they get close to the city, that evidently they get a little nervous. And what great fortune. Here comes an ite. And we'll just ask him to help us. And then we'll treat him well. So as we look at this, I think we are seeing another example of incomplete obedience. Now, if... If in our hearts we say, well, you don't want to just slaughter the guy. Yeah, there is another option, isn't there? Drive them out. Tell them you've got two hours to get out of, to get started in the right direction because we're going to take this city. And if you're still around when we finish, then we're coming after you. Now, does that seem cruel and harsh? Yeah, it does a little bit. But what had God said? And why did God say that? does seem harsh, doesn't it? I thought we had a loving God. It sounds awful mean. What did God know about Israel if they dwelt among the ites of the land? They will sin. They will go and take on false gods. It will be an unmitigated disaster. So don't do it. So even though in my human sinful nature, I want to question God and say, hey, God, that's pretty mean. I know better than that. God knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. And so I say to God, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do. Or at least that's what I should say. So interesting here, I wonder in the future, what mischief and bloodshed might be caused because this family went and founded another ite city. Now, most of the cities that we're reading about today will ultimately be conquered again. By whom? How long? 400, 400, almost 400 years later. When David conquered those cities... We don't have all the details we might want to have, but did he sometimes lose soldiers? Of course. So because of the incomplete obedience of this generation in Judges, David and his men would eventually suffer loss. And yes, they won victories, but he still had to go and deliver the message to some mothers, your son was killed in action. Or to wives, your husband was killed in action. All because previous generations refused to be obedient. So think on all of that. Let those be lessons to us as we try to pull from this, not just historical facts that certainly interest us and intrigue us, but what does it say to our hearts? And when there is incomplete obedience on my part, it may be that I won't even see the consequences of that in my lifetime, but children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren or my great-great-grandchildren might suffer consequences because of my disobedience. And that is, that's a sobering, a sobering thought. When out there several generations from now, if there's anybody in my family that even remembers my name, 
I certainly don't want them to say, yeah, if he had been obedient, this would have never happened to us. Rather, I would want them to say, yes, we've heard stories that he was a good and a godly man. That's what I hope. So it's imperative for us to be obedient in totality. Okay. Well, I think I flogged that one enough that we get the point. So let's look at verse 27. 27 and 28. But Manasseh... Oh, oh by, by, by the way, uh, um, back to Bethel, Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. What does lose mean? No. What does lose mean? Lose means almond tree. Almond tree. Almond tree. L-U-Z. Loose. Almond tree. Almond. You like almonds? There you go. All right. Okay, back to verse... I don't even know why I thought that was important. <laughs> but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, Bethshan or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo. Hmm... Where have I heard that? And their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Hmm. Bethshan means house of quiet. Manasseh failed to drive the people out of those cities. Megiddo, we Armageddon, you know, well, you, you've heard of that. So we're not going to jump off into a study of future things right now, but that's just a city you've heard of. And you can go there today and crawl all over the ruins of that place. It's incredible. Manasseh fails to drive out the Canaanites. Later, he exploits them for forced labor. But the bottom line is Manasseh was disobedient. Now, as you reflect on this, it makes business sense for Manasseh to use the ites as slaves rather than to go to the effort that would be involved in obedience to God in running them off. So convenience trumps obedience. Common sense does not necessarily equal God's will. We've observed that already in our brief time in the book of Judges. Common sense, what just seems like logical common sense, does not necessarily equal the will of God. Because God says to Israel... Run them out of the land. Now, how likely was it that they could do that in their own strength? Totally impossible. There are too few of them. The ites have fortified cities and, in many cases, better weapons like chariots we talked about last week. Israel has no organized army. Now, Israel today has a very well-organized army, but in those days, nah, they they were pathetic in, in a manner of speaking. So what is the human likelihood that they could conquer the land? Zero. But God says, do it, and I'm going to help you, and you'll win the victory. (laughs) They didn't remember that, did they? 
or maybe it wasn't their memory at fault. They remembered they just couldn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. So they opted for an incomplete obedience. And for the rest of Israel's history, she would rue those decisions that were made by that generation. Now, be careful as an individual believer and as a, and a collectively as a church when someone says to you, well, it only makes common sense that we do this. Be careful. Sometimes that may be true. God's will does is equal to common sense, but not always. So be careful about what initially appears to be common sense but is not obedient in totality to what God wants us to do. Verse 29, sounds like a broken record. I can say that in this room because you know what records are. <laughs> I can't say that in the, in the second service on Sunday morning. They said, records? What is, what is that? Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. So Ephraim compromises. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did not subject them to forced labor. So here Zebulun not only doesn't run them out, but doesn't even put them in slavery. What are they thinking? They opt. Well, oh, they did subject them to forced labor. I'm sorry, I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, that's the wrong story. They did subject them, but he opts, Zebulun opts for forced labor instead of total obedience. Well, surely somebody's going to come through here, but not in verse 31. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Azib or Helbah or Aphek or Rehob. Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. So Asher disobeys. All right, verse 33, Naphtali. I love to say that, Naphtali. Surely with a name like that, they're going to obey. Verse 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beit Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. More of the same. More of the same. Now, verse 34, Dan. Surely Dan will obey. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Dan's disobedience leads to confinement. That's ridiculous. And I say that because that never needed to happen. Never needed to happen. But it did. They're incomplete obedience and they end up... It's like somebody put a big fence around them and they can't get outside of it. Verse 35 and 36. And the Amorites were determined. Notice that. The Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Harris, Ajalon, and 
Shalbim, but when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. And the boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Now, I'll just get this. Scorpion Pass is a pass that's located southwest of the Dead Sea. So picture the Dead Sea. You're way south in Israel, way south. Go southwest from the southern tip of the Dead Sea a number of miles, and you're at Scorpion Pass. Go all the way into Jordan to modern-day, well, not modern-day, ancient Petra. Some of you have been to Petra. There is a modern-day city there, but ancient Petra. That's a pretty good distance. And so the Amorites, their boundary was from Scorpion Pass all the way to Petra and beyond. Now, we've got an incomplete obedience again. Now, here's what strikes me in these verses, because you can read about the disobedience over and over again and it begins to roll off your back like water off a duck's back. But look at this. And the Amorites were determined to hold out. So what does that show us? God's people became less brave and less determined than the people who did not know God. And that's a crying shame. Now, Israel lives in the promised land. Yay, praise the Lord. We're happy for that. But they live among landmines before landmines were invented. And the landmines are the ites. And Israel is going to live to regret that they did not obey God. All right, finally, are you ready to move on to chapter 2? kind of wears me out, that whole first chapter. So um, let's look at chapter 2, the first five verses, okay? The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim, which means weepers. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So unnecessary. So God promises. Look at his promises in verse 1 and verse 2. I said I was going to bring you here. I brought you here. I promised you the land. I'll never break my covenant with you. I've delivered you into this place. All I ask was that you do what I tell you to do. I don't, if I'd been there, I don't know. I'd been, I'd been like a worm about this point. I mean, how low can you feel when the angel of the Lord is saying, look at what I've done for you and, and this is the way you respond? feel like I'm in front of my mama. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my word. 
All I asked was that you obey me completely. You, you, you didn't even do that. And so there are consequences to be paid. And the consequences are God says, I'm not going to drive them out. You created this mess. Figure it out. What are you going to do? So the people react. They weep aloud. Bokim, the name of the place, weepers. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. And they will remember this occasion for a while. But sadly, not too long. God wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just part of it, over all of it. And so, if I think I can take great comfort in the fact that in some area of my life I've been obedient and try to ignore the fact that in another area of my life I've been disobedient, I I can't, where's the comfort in that? The comfort comes in the grace of God forgiving my sin and then my being totally obedient to Him. That's where my peace and my comfort comes. Yours also. Halfway lordship is no lordship at all. If we understand the word Lord, we can't say, well, Jesus is Lord over part of my life, but he's not Lord over all of my life. Now, remember... um, 1 Corinthians 10.13. I think I read this verse Sunday if I remember correctly. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Next time you open to 1 Corinthians 10.13, look at the verse. If you haven't underlined it, then do so. Take a highlighter and highlight God is faithful. Underline it and then believe it. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's a great verse. That is a great verse. I I can't ever say somebody else made me do it. The devil made me do it. I couldn't help myself. I had no choice. Blah, 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 blah. I can't, I can't do it. I can't say that. Neither can you. We face temptation. God provides a way of escape because he's faithful. Remember the faithfulness of God. The root of, of our disobedience is a failure to remember that he is God and he promised to lead us. So the consequences are severe, but the rewards of obedience are beyond anything we can comprehend. Beyond anything we can comprehend. We desire obedience. Now, I I can't believe it's already time to go. So next week we'll start at verse 6 of chapter 2. And we're going to look at the death of Joshua. Now this is a look back at what we've already read about in the book of Joshua. So we're going to look back at the death of Joshua. We're going to see some uh, positive highlights about Israel, and we're also going to see negative lowlights as we continue forward in these next few verses. So 
I hope to see you next week. All right, let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that we will take to heart what we've read, that this will not just be historical fact of what you have done in years past, but that we will remember by example from Israel that your expectation for lordship is total obedience, complete obedience, that we would never pretend to be satisfied with partial obedience, but that we would understand we must obey you in all things and do that with great joy, realizing that you have promised us blessing and that you will bless us beyond anything we can ever imagine. And I pray with that knowledge in our minds that we will be found faithful in all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you next week.